Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Australian bookmaker Kevin Saber. Kevin, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today, I'm joined by Australian bookmaker, Kevin Saber. Kevin, thank you very much for coming on. Absolute pleasure, Jake. Thanks very much. So, Kevin, let's start with your background and, and I guess growing up in and around racing and betting and, and how that shaped you. Can you take us back to some of your early memories and, and what got you involved in this industry? Well, I guess probably my earliest memory is wondering where my dad was uh, nicking off to on a Saturday morning when I was 10 or 11 or 12 and come home and uh, late in the afternoon, whatever, and uh, I eventually found out that he was working for a local SP up in East Bedley as a part-time job. So um, that was uh, he was always interested in the racing industry, passionately right down the scratchings every morning and all that sort of stuff. So that was my first interest. And I think I started going to the races when I was 16, 18, that sort of thing, and having a bit of a look around and is to pretend to punt, you know, you keep a little ledger when you're about 12, have a dollar each one of things and see how much you won, all that sort of stuff. But uh, I guess seriously I got involved uh, in my mid-20s when I started working for other bookmakers as a part-time job on a Saturday. So how do you go from a kid growing up, maybe having a bet here or there, to wanting to be a bookmaker, or do you get kind of led into it or forced into it, for want of a better word? I think... Um, it was a passion that I had from quite an early age, say mid-20s, early 20s, mid-20s, and it was unfulfilled until, you know, uh, I was, what, 45 probably, and um, probably because of circumstances, you had a family growing up and kids and mortgages and things like that, steady job, it's very hard to leave all that and take on something where you have to start from the bottom up and... So ultimately, I was able to do that um, after having a career working for other bookies and learning. And I must admit that uh, Anthony Dowdy was my, when I, he probably doesn't regard himself as my mentor, but he certainly was someone who taught me uh, the process of bookmaking and the process of studying the form and watching videos, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I felt I was ready to do it. Um, yeah, I went through a divorce and you know had a sort of a free reign there. So off I went and grabbed my bookies license, uh, which wasn't that easy to get, by the way. And, but all, at the same time, I, it's a passion more than a um, job for me, if you know what I mean. So when when you're getting started and you obtain your license, what are we talking about in terms of bankroll to get started? Do you need to be pretty deep in the pockets to get? started in the beginning or can you work your way up and start with lower limits and things like that 
in your earlier days? Well, you start with lower limits because you're off, you know, off rails and working in the country and things like that. But um, you have to have a bankroll. You have to put up a guarantee <clears throat> through the Victorian Bookmakers Association. They have a guarantee fund so that no one can sort of jump in and walk away, um, so to speak, with unpaid debts. But uh, So you've got to have a decent bankroll. But, um, you... Uh, uh, you bet within your limits, and as you as you maybe win and your bank grows a bit, maybe you bet within higher limits. That's that's how I went about it anyway. What type of time were you putting into your business back then? Was it 10, 12, 14 hour days, or was it the high life and four or five hours a day and just you know winning each week? Yeah, well, I guess there's the odd bookmaker whose form study consists of finding out what time the first race is, but. Um, I was a bit different to that, and I'd, I'd do three to four hours form on a meeting, travel to the meeting, work there for four or five hours and travel home. So if you add that up, it's probably, what is it, 10 to 14 hours, depending on where you're going. Hmm. Hard work. How is that sustainable over a longer period of time? You've obviously done it for many years, but and it seems like a lot of people... Well, you don't have... do it every day. You don't do it every day. Um, although in peak times you do it every day, um, but in peak times also you're not travelling as far because you're, you're going to Flemington or Caulfield, etc. So um, I guess your day then is about nine to ten hour days and uh, you just get used to doing it. You get up early. I've always got up early. Um, and into the form first thing in the morning, if not the day before, and um, try and do some sort of price assessment, uh, try and... In those days, in the early days, I had a terrific memory for just watching the race once. You know, I could watch it at the races and remember things from the races. And uh, you could ask me about a horse and I'd be able to tell you what it did last start and all that sort of stuff. But um, as you get that little bit older, the the memory fades a bit and um, that's not as easy these days. So is it possible, this might be a dumb question, but is it possible to to cheat a little bit as a bookmaker and cut corners and not do the form potentially for a couple of races on a day because you, you know, you didn't want to put in the time? Does, is that obviously if you're a better, you can just not place a bet on those races. But from a bookmaker's perspective, was there any shortcuts that you learned over the years? Well, I think there's a lot of shortcuts, particularly now. I mean, jumping jumping right ahead to, you know, 2019. I mean, Betfair and, uh, and situations like that. I mean, there's many bookmakers that... Uh, don't take their eyes off Betfair and they can just operate their business based on um, what the prices are in the ring as against what they are in Betfair and they might extend them by one or two points and maybe get a bet. Um, uh, And then if they wanted to, they can lay off on Betfair. That's not my way of doing things. Um, I'd rather have the odds on the board that I think they should be. If Betfair comes in a bit, well, I'm quite happy to match Betfair from time to time and risk my opinion against the market, so to speak. What percentage of your colleagues were taking that type of approach, do you think? Probably on the rails, there would have been, um, say, on the Flemington Rail Cup Week, 18 or 19 bookies. I'd say 20 to 25% would be working off form study in their own markets. Um, others would be pure bookmakers, which the favourite would be their worst, the second favourite would be their second worst, etc. Um, others would be, I wouldn't say flying by the seat of their pants, but they'd be, you know, just doing their best based on backing and laying on bet backing 
on Betfair, lying on Betfair, taking bets in the ring, and quite successfully so too. There's all sorts of ways to be successful. There's no knock on that, that sort of way. There's just different methods what I've used. Do you have a sense of which might be more profitable over the longer term? That's a very good question because um, ultimately the harder you work, I believe, um, in any situation, the more profitable you're likely to be. Um, but the marketplace has changed so dramatically that the on-course punters just aren't there anymore, uh, certainly the cash punters, and it makes it very difficult for a form-based bookie or a form student bookie to actually do what he wants to do. So you, you may not be able to even lay horses that you don't like. Um, so the answer to your question is that the, the Betfair method, if you can call it that, um, or the pure bookying method, even that sometimes doesn't work because of inability to lay horses on course. Um, the Betfair method seems to be the one that's um, more successful these days, but I think that's dying too. And you mentioned about the hard work aspect. Do you think that can be something like just getting the volume of races and making sure you're at every race day that you can, every carnival that you can? Or are you talking about... If it is a 10-race card at Flemington uh, during the spring, you need to put in a lot of work individually on those races and individually on those horses, for example? Well, there's a number of people that you know work lots of days a week, even now. I mean, um, the Anthony Daddies, the Dave McLaughlin's of the world, they are the main you know, go-to bookmakers when it comes to working lots of meetings. Um, Fred Watts is another one. Um, I used to be. I used to be at just as many meetings as what they were, but I've gradually given away various tracks because of their unworkability. I don't know if that's a word, but it'll have to do. Um, just to, an inability to be able to manage a book in the way you wanted to, be able to take in volume of bets, holdings dropping off dramatically. So I've picked and chosen my um, preferred venues, and I'm sticking to that and um, quite happily at the moment. So you mentioned a little bit earlier about the process of bookmaking and things you learnt from some of those that were working around you or that came before you. Take us through sort of the key elements of your process that are critical. You mentioned you might spend three or four hours of time going through the form, but I'm sure there's many other things that you need to do to, to remain sharp. Oh, yes. Um, well, just be aware of what's going on, aware of uh, trainers and jockeys and strike rates and uh, things like that. Um, I'm not sure if that's I'm mentioning your question properly, but... Now, I'm, uh, I have a pretty, what I call it, methodical way of doing the form. I, I do it, but I make sure I know the, um, what I think are relevant gear changes, relevant jockey changes. I certainly do the weights and have a look at uh, you know, advantages from one against the other, with all the obvious sort of stuff. Um, I don't watch videos as much as I used to. Um, I watch it, I watch videos that I think I need to watch. Just to, you know, there might be something in the stewards report that takes my eye, or there might be a, a comment in a, um, a form magazine that I might look at and say, hmm, I better have a look at that. And uh, so all those sorts of things they all add up to a, a finished product, I guess. In terms of your more methodical approach, has that evolved much over the years? Have you added and changed different elements within that, even though it's remained pretty methodical? I've had a piece of paper stuck up on the wall in my office that has a list of about eight or ten things, and I actually go through those things still every day in that order. I might have added one or two, but they're the ones I know I have to do um, on every race. 
place on every horse. So, um, I mean, and, and there's nothing, you know, out of the ordinary in terms of form study with those, but it's just a, a memory thing to make sure that I don't miss doing something and don't feel uh, stressed about it when I get there. So, geez, I forgot to do that or, you know, I forgot to look at this, etc., etc. So I, ha- I, I want to go to the races with a clear head, with a clear vision of what I want to do. It makes it, A, a much more enjoyable day rather than have to fumble around and try and work things out when you're there because I think it's, a, it's such a time-driven industry. Split seconds, et cetera, et cetera. You, you don't have time to make form-like decisions on the spot. You have to know what you're doing. What do you do when you're having a bad day and you might have lost four of the first five races and you've still got three or four more to come? Is there anything you've learned over the years to able to adapt to those certain circumstances or do you just keep it on the straight and narrow and get through race by race? Well, certainly uh, I, I had a, I've had a number of very, very good guys working for me. I won't call them Clark because they're really guys that work with me and for me. Wayne Bent, Greg Martin, and particularly Greg Martin in the last seven to eight years, although he's uh, no longer with me because of other circumstances. But Greg was always one to be the calming influence. He'd say, it's only the next race. It doesn't matter about the last five, you know. And he's absolutely right. He was, a, you know, because I might chase a little bit and then I'd, and he would go, you know, what are you doing? Um, and that sort of stuff. And I'd, you know, before the race started, I might back it back and stuff like that. And he was, uh, I think you need to have people working for you who understand racing. Um, there's a lot of people at the races these days who are good keyboard operators, um, people working on bags who don't know anything about the races. But I think if you've got someone working for you who is a racing person, um, that's a great help to a bookmaker in terms of um, managing their emotions, if you if you like. If you lose on the first four or five races, uh, it's not an easy thing to then calm and just sort of work your way back into it in the same manner as what you would normally do. I can tell you that uh, maybe a little anecdote that uh, you may be interested in was uh, the Warnable Carnival, um, first day. Inevitably, the first five races are basically the three maiden hurdles. A maiden, I think it's a three-year-old over a 1,000 metres or so, or 1,100, and then there's a, a Vobus Gold two-year-old race with a lot of unraised horses and not much form. So there's the first five races. I keep warning myself, I write notes to myself, <laughs> and even Greg sent me a text message this year saying, don't forget what you said about working on the first five races on the first day of Warrnambool. Um, without going into specifics, I did my arse on the first five races of Warrnambool this year. So I didn't follow my own advice on that occasion. It was extremely costly. So next year I'm putting a tattoo across my head. Don't work on the first five races at Warrnambool on the first day. <laughs> well, I guess that leads me to this question in terms of you mentioned earlier, it's a time-driven industry. There are certain days where you might have all the things in place and it A, doesn't go your way, and B, you probably don't react or respond how you want it to. How does one refresh and revitalize and take time off when it is so time intensive yeah like it on when i was working you know flat out so to say at the peak of what i was doing i was probably working four to five minimum days a week um family is always a good way i mean i was involved with a local footy club and son played footy i coach footy i was president there for a little while stuff like that was all going on and um my daughters were sporty as well and 
Um, you know, local community was always important to me. You've got to – I try to get away. You play golf. play golf for four hours. You don't think of racing. You don't think of the stresses of it. Um, it's not easy to do to find the time to do that, but I think you have to find the time to relax because otherwise you're completely intensively involved seven days, 16 hours a day in, in something that is – so data-driven and so um, intense when it comes to figures and maths, etc., that uh, just wears you out, I guess. And um, I, I love it, and I still do, but I find it frustrating to go to the races when there's just no one there having a bet. So do you have a preference towards the Warrnambool Carnivals, the Flemington Carnivals, or are you just as happy uh, Wednesday Sandown type situation? Well, I don't work at Sandown and Wednesdays anymore, and um, I probably haven't want, I've had a licence there for quite a long time, and probably for the last three or four years of that, I probably really didn't want to be there. Um, just no one there, same as that. Um, but I can go to – look, Easter Saturday this year, I went to the Warwick and Bill Cup. Sounds like a very strange place for an ex-Rails bookie to turn up, but that's where I was. And I went there by myself. I drove up there on Good Friday, start the night. Woke up feeling crook as a dog from the flu, not from alcohol. And if I hadn't have already been there, I wouldn't have even gone. I worked there one out, had a computer, set it all up myself, held 10,000 cash, 400 and something tickets on an eight-race eight program, which is a lot. And there's no credit betting, just all cash. Not a lot of money. No one five grand. That's the sort of day I work towards and want. Not so much the winning part of it. But the fact that you've got an opportunity to lay horses and have a book that you want. So that's why I get, I travel five hours to go to work. So that sounds like a bit of a competitive nature inside of you to look forward to those days, execute on those days in a way that you had planned for. And then I'm sure the drive back was a little bit sweeter on, on that one. Uh, yeah, the night was sweet. Had a couple of beers and the drive back the next day was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> the... Um, you know, I, I now work north northeast Victoria. I still work at uh, Flemington, Mooney Valley, and over the Caulfield Cup Carnival, and I've still got licences. At, well, I still work at Mornington and the Packerdams, and well, not so much Packerdam, but Mornington these days. And uh, you know, I'm happily working at the Wodongas, the Wangaratas, the Panellas, and uh, of the world. And um, you know, obviously they're close to me geographically, so it makes it that much that much easier. But you know, I love working at Wodonga. I can see the racetrack from my house. Um, uh, I've got to know the people involved with the racing club. And I think I think I've got a, a genuine interest in Wodonga racing, which is probably becoming more important to me than the actual bookmaking these days. I just think it's a great racing club, it's a great community, and um, that's probably I'm probably heading a little bit more in that direction these days than um, wanting to grow. I could actually... Because I'm so close to the border, obviously it will be Wodonga. I could apply for a New South Wales licence and work in the southern New South Wales district or whatever they – I'm not sure what it's called. You know, the Woggers, all those places along the border that have meetings occasionally. But there's, there's, a, there's a Saturday meeting, for example, I think within an hour or two of me in New South Wales every week. So, um, But I went to a few just as a spectator. I went to the whole book cup as a – 
as a social day out. And, you know, there's, they've got the same problem. There's eight points there on Holbrook Cup Day, the biggest cup day they have for the year. In fact, I think it's the only day they have for the year. Big crowd, but no one bets. They're just there for the day out. So that doesn't attract me all that much. Always a bit of an issue because there's no one there except for Cup Day. And I think the world of betting on course is changing dramatically. Um, those who don't take phone bets sort of being forced out or, or on the other hand of it, just copying the backwash from those that do take the phone bets. Uh, those that do take the phone bets have always got the issue of credit. I know I no longer want to have anything to do with credit betting. Um, I've, I've been burnt and burnt and burnt, so I'm out of credit betting. I'm interested in – I still love racing. I watch racing replays. I watch – I watch racing shows. I watch footy shows too, but I watch racing shows just out of interest more than necessarily business. I have a a passion, as I said earlier, racing and bookmaking. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So take me through if there's anything different in terms of your process when talking about Wodonga or Warwick Nabil versus Caulfield or the Cox Plate, for example. Is there a, a vast change or is it pretty much the same process? You just diff, different hold, different number of tickets and that type of thing? Well, I guess, uh, to be honest with you, Caulfield and Cox Plate are easier because uh, the market comes out on a Wednesday. By the time I get there on a Saturday, the market's pretty much set. Um, those who have done the form have taken the picking of the odds. Um, and the form study isn't as great for Metropolitan meetings. It's not required by me anymore to have that level of form study that I did, say, back in 2007 or eight or something like that um, for Metro. For country meetings, if you're nice to get your head stuck into the form, you get shot down for sure. And uh, so I spend more time studying country racing, even though it's uh, on a lower scale. Than when I do metropolitan. Take me through your clients and customers over the years. How has things changed or evolved as you know time has passed? Are the behaviours and the trends generally the same? Uh, it's just you know a different time for betting and betting on course. I've had big clients, um, big bets. Um, um, I've had betting shops, so-called corporate bookmakers, betting back through me. Uh, I've been not name which ones were betting back through, but you know. Two or three of the larger betting shops were betting back through me when I was on the rails. We had a good relationship. We understood each other. We, you know, if I could, if I, I would usually take their bets. Sometimes I get them to hang on while I made sure I uh, reduce my commitment to what I wanted it to be. Um, credit, credit betters outside um, betting shops. There's a lot of people around who just bet. Um, they might have big businesses. They might have small businesses. They generally bet beyond their means. Um, ultimately, uh, a lot of people fail. Uh, ultimately, a lot of people don't pay. And that's very distressing, both I'm sure from their point of view and my point of view, I guess my point of view particularly. Um, I've got over 200,000 of bad debts. Um, makes it very, very hard. What about the new wave of bookmakers coming through? I'm sure you're doing some mentoring, either directly or indirectly. How does the how does the landscape look like in I guess two thousand and nineteen? Well, it's very yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I'm doing too much mentoring. I'm trying to fight them off more than mentoring. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, no, no, there are a few coming through. They tend to be not what I would call 
bookmakers. They're just young people who, um, you know, have some background in the sport, maybe some fo- uh, um, family backgrounds. Um, there's a few that, you know, come through that are um, stupid, but uh, they don't tend to be provincial or country bookmakers. They tend to more want to work in the city. So, um, but, you know, there's um, – in Victoria, there's a number of new, sorry, a number of new bookmakers. Phil Divin is a new bookmaker who's working in the rails in Melbourne. He went into partnership with Neil Slater, who's unfortunately not very well and can't work himself. So Phil's a, a form student and works hard and bets big. Um, there's others that are um, yeah, more bet fair driven, I guess. No, no one else comes to mind as being a, a highlight that's going to sort of um, the world by storm in the next five years. If you were to prognosticate about the next decade of bookmaking and, and the business itself, what are your thoughts or how do you think it will evolve over the next period of time with uh, with the way things are shaping up currently? I can recall several discussions about that over the last 10 to 12 years. I think, without naming names, there was a number of rails bookmakers had a bit of a chat one day and there was might have been a lunch, I can't remember. Um, and I think 10 years ago we said five years would be all gone. Five years ago we said two years would be all gone. And I'd say, look, I, a lot of people are there because they don't know anything else. They don't know, they don't, know that don't have another occupation. Others are there because that's what they've always done and they're, not, they're, and they're still good at it. And they, I mean, there's some stars when it comes to being good at it. Anthony Daddy's one, Ed McLaughlin's one, Fred Watson's one, there's Rod Cleary, there's others. In terms of on track bookmakers at country racecourses, I can't imagine, other than carnival times, there being even one or two at, you know, places like Wangatonga, Wangaratta, um, where else? Ballarat might have two in the end. Bendigo, two at the most. Seymour might have one or two. Moynton will always have four or five. But the rest, you couldn't possibly justify having more than that number of people in the ring. And that's it's not the fault of the marketplace in the betting rooms on track. It's the fault of, not fault, the wrong word. It's the inability to compete with the marketing dollars of the corporates. The, the corporates are able to market, them, market themselves in such a way that um, – Young people particularly are attracted to their products, um, the bonuses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if anyone goes to an on-course track, goes to the on-course bookies these days, they'll see that our markets, a percentage of market and our market per horse, 12-horse race will have 10 horses better than the corporate over, over a period of the betting on a race. And that's provable. I'd really like the Victorian Bookmakers Association to publish the actual prices that bookmakers bet, say at Flemington on a Saturday, as compared to what's being produced on what's now called the VOP, the Victorian official price, which is taken off the corporate bookmakers. And it, pr- it will prove that on-course bookmakers and the advantage of going to the track um, is still there, but um, the ability to market that information is beyond either individual bookmakers or even, or even the association of bookmakers being the media. Is there a thought or a sense that there might have been a missed opportunity with respect to on track? Obviously, online is 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 trending in a very much an upward direction. Absolutely, there's a missed opportunity because we we should have 
we should have, as a group, formed um, our own corporate, if you like, type bookmaker with, with, a, with a combined pool of bookmakers with uh, price offerings on that site. And um, Best Bookies is probably the best example of that. It's run by some people in Western Australia. But something similar to that should have been formed by our own association or associations. And it's getting close to that now. Um, I know the Australian Bookmakers Association has got something going in Sydney where the, uh, uh, I think, and the Rails bookmakers' prices are now now available online and people can bet from their mobiles into those. That's coming into Melbourne Metro soon and that will improve things. Uh, I doubt it'll ever get to um, country racing, but it's, it's certainly something that will, um, A, prove the point that I was just making about pricing and, secondly, give the public a, a better idea and, and, and a better opportunity of where they can go to have a bet that may be of better value. So in terms of racing administration, it sounds like you might even be on that path in, in the years to come. If you were speaking to or advising advising someone in that space about what the next, you know, the five to seven year plan could be or should be for a, let's just say a, a non-top uh, tier metro track, what are the types of things you expect to see in some of those longer-term plans for the Wodongas of the world? Oh, look, Wodonga of the world is actually a very well-administered club, and I'm not just saying that because I know the people. I mean, they've had they've had massive increases in their on-course attendances, particularly their Cup Day. The Cup Day this year was, or last year in November, was 9,200 people turned up. That's an enormous crowd for a town of this size. It's only 20,000 to 25,000 people live here. It was 8,400 the year before, and before that it was about 6,000, and, and it, it's gradually increased every year. Their marquee setup was enormous. The, the trick is, to, is from a bookmaking and a punting point of view, is to get those people who are in those marquees, not just drinking and eating and getting on their phone and betting off course. Now, there's not a financial incentive for clubs to have people betting with on-course bookmakers because they get a much bigger income out of people betting through the tote and the corporates. I'm not sure of the percentage they get of on-course tote. I'll guess it's, say, 6%. I'm not really sure, but it's around about that figure. Um, if, if it's something less than that, I apologise to the, to the country clubs. Um, but certainly they're not getting anywhere near that, something less than 1% off on-course bookmakers. And... It's uh, therefore a disincentive to promote bookmakers on course um, for a financial purpose. I think the incentive should be for for country and metropolitan race clubs to promote bookmakers on course, to promote attendances, because I'm absolutely sure, and people you talk to all the time, I guess I talk to people who come to the races, but they come to the races because there's on-course bookies. I was talking to some people at Flemington last Saturday. Had a very quiet day up at level one of the brand-new grandstand there, um, Club Grandstand, I think it's called. Um, Talking to a lot of people up there, and they said if there weren't bookmakers on the track, they wouldn't come. They wouldn't come and drink the champagne at... $99 $99 a bottle. They wouldn't come and drink the beer at $10 a stubby because they don't, they don't necessarily come to have a bet with the bookmakers, but they like to have a look to see what the prices are with the bookmakers. And 
they wander around, they like the atmosphere of the bookmaking ring. They can't imagine a race course without a bookmaker. In other words, we don't want to be like New Zealand. No one goes to races there. Um, so I guess my my offering towards the administration of racing would be to promote on-course bookmakers, not for, from a financial sense of income to the club, but from a sense of ensuring that attendances stay the same or, or increase. And that's there's no attempt that I'm aware of by any track at the moment to promote on-course bookmakers. Now, maybe on-course bookmakers through their association should be doing that themselves. That's not happening either. What I'd like to say is that I'm going to be a bit careful what to say. <laughs> the, the, the VRC is a, is a very good and progressive race club. They've built, a, they've built an enormous facility there in terms of the new members' grandstand. Unfortunately, the building of that has absolutely ruined the rails. The old rails at Flemington, Jake, you'd probably remember it. You wouldn't recognise it. Um, I don't know when's the last time we've seen it. It is disgraceful and no atmosphere, no one in the ring. Even in Cup Week, it was so quiet. It's um, very, very disappointing to what's happened there. Corfit, on the other hand, is vibrant. It's an inside ring. Um, cup time, if, if anything, it's too too crowded and too busy. I don't think anyone really complains about it. But, um, Mooney Valley Cox Plate, there's nothing like it. You know, Cox Plate Day at Mooney Valley, no matter where you go in that track, it's busy. It's fantastic. But if you go there to a night meeting in uh, April, we could fire a cannon, etc. So it's about promoting getting people to the races so that they continue to spend their dollars on whatever product, other products are there, alcohol, food, etc. Get them out of ruse. Don't have clubs that only promote alcohol particularly. Don't allow clubs. In other words, RBL shouldn't allow clubs to promote the alcohol-only type. You see, I've seen at least one club um, where their flyer for the day didn't mention the races, didn't didn't even mention that there was racing on, had nothing to, you know, it was just all about the social aspect. That's very disappointing. I think I'll leave it at that. It does sound like things have certainly shifted and, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I would go to those Friday night Mooney Valley meetings or even throughout the carnivals and then off-season, um, things are changing rapidly. With that said, if a 24, 25, 26-year-old young person said, Kevin, let's go and grab a coffee, I want to pick your brain and package up all the wisdom that you have, what are some of the things that you would share with that type of person that's looking to get into the bookmaking business or just generally getting into betting these days? Without being too negative, um, I, th- I just can't see the upside of it. Um, you have to start at the bottom. Very hard to work your way through to the places where they're workable, that are profitable. Um, there's people t- doing it at the moment. The main way of doing it at the moment is to buy people's businesses that are oh, they're either retiring or just you know, getting too old or just want to get out. So the main way a young person getting in is to buy their way. What I would say is I still do believe that the same methods will work. If you work hard enough at it, whether it be form or whether it be 
an intense concentration on, on Betfair and don't miss a thing, um, an intense concentration on shortness on corporates, that sort of stuff, you still can mathematically make a good living out of it because if you lay them at the right odds and back them at the right odds or lay it back and lay, if that's what a lot of people are doing, then it's a very profitable thing to do. You have to have a mathematical mind. I've got no doubt that you couldn't do it just walking in without understanding A, racing and B, maths, just simple maths and be very, very quick mathematically and quick quick decision makers. So the advice would be consider what you're good at, um, consider if you've got these skills, if you've got the skills, by all means, have a try, but I wouldn't give up your full-time job. So a couple of more general questions before I let you go. And on that current theme, who's the best bookmaker you've seen over the years that you've worked with or alongside or battled against or with against the punters and what made them so good? I guess there's good in all sorts of ways. Um, there's good in terms of skill. There's good in terms of um, courage. There's good in terms of ability to stand horses for lots of money, ability to take on particular punters, big punters, I guess just to, to, the ability to take on the big punters and the big, you know, the really big players, you have to look at Frank Hudson, Bill Graham, Ernie Campania more recently, Rod Cleary. In terms of just being good at the craft, the survivors are, are the ones that are good at the craft, the Fred Wattses, the David McLaughlins. Um, I'm probably missing a few, but ultimately the best. And the survivor, he's been a bookmaker since he was 21. I mentioned him earlier as my mentor. He taught me how to do it. And he still basically does it the same way as Anthony Dowdy. Absolutely the best bookmaker in Victoria. And probably the most prolific, probably goes to more meetings still than anyone else. I hope there's a biography on Anthony coming out soon. Certainly be interested in reading it or watching the documentary. So in line with that, do you, is there a biggest win that stands out or a big, the biggest loss or a, the biggest bet you've accepted over the years and uh, something that springs to mind immediately when I ask something like that? Well, I guess that everyone's biggest bets is on black caviar. I mean, it's not the biggest <laughs> stand. <laughs> But um, I had a bloke had over 200,000 on Black Caviar one day. I think the I can't remember the price, but it was you know, somewhere around the dollar six, dollar twelve, something like that. So, um, but in terms of biggest stand, um, my I had a bit of a theory, not not a bit of a theory. I had a definite theory that um, the star three-year-olds coming down from Sydney for the uh, Spring Carnival, a if they were having their first start in Caulfield at the short price, no matter who they were, was always worth a lay. And I also felt that horses, particularly from, again, certainly not from anyone from other than Victoria, but mainly New South Wales horses, going down the straight for the first time, three-year-olds going down the straight for the first time. So there was a horse, I think it was Exosphere, was it? No, it was an unbeaten three-year-old from Sydney going down the straight the first time over the carnivals, probably, I think it was that, I don't even know what the race is called these days, but it was a, you know, $500,000, 1,200-metre race or something like that. And uh, it was odds on. And um, I think I went, I started laying it at $1.65 and I was still trying to lay it at $1.90. Put on just top odds the whole way through and it was just one of those things where I thought I was right 
and I think it ran a lovely fourth. So that was good. Yeah, I remember that. That was, uh, I think it was Japanese It was the horse, one of Waller's horses, probably, who ended up yes, winning. Yes, yes, yes. You, you've, got, you, you've got me there. It was probably about 20 to 1. I can't recall laying it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. No, that makes so sense. I think I got the lot. It was one of those days where, um, I think it's BIC Derby Day or something. I've got to make sure about the right day. Yeah, I think it's so, the Coolmore, the Coolmore down the straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I also recall that the very first – I'm pretty sure it's the same year. I'm not sure. I'm 100% sure it's the same year. Now I come to think it's not. But um, there was a horse from, in the Carbine Club Stakes that was um, $1.50. And um, I'd marked it 350 So it was a significant um, incentive to stand it. And I tried, I tried to get every dollar I could out of that, and I think I stood it for about 40000 so I got about 80000 out of it, roughly. And um, anyway, so it was never going to win, and in fact was gone and dropped back to wherever, and I don't know how, but got up and wanted a photo. So it was not a great straight start to the carnival that day. Um, but... In the end, that week was the biggest week in terms of winning I ever had. So um, maybe I just put my head down and got it right. <laughs> so there were several good carnivals, but um, um, you know, I, I've probably sounded very negative about bookmaking, but the fact was that it's been very, very good to me in my life. I mean, we we've travelled extensively, we've loved it, we've loved the camaraderie, we've loved the people we've met. Um, a lot of great friends who I've met through racing. Um, and, look, that still remains. I mean, we, we love going to the races socially. Um, but the fact of the matter is that racing and bookmaking has been very good to me, and I, and, and I should be uh, making sure I say that because financially, I mean, if I had stayed working doing what I was doing, I couldn't possibly have made as much money over a period of time as what I did bookmaking. So you've got to be proud of that. But on the other hand, uh, as I think I mentioned in the little note I wrote to you, I mean, the last three to five years have been not great, and it's very, very difficult. I mean, I, I don't think I made a profit for three years in a row there, so it makes life pretty difficult because it wasn't really good at saving money. It was pretty good at spending it. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, life goes on. And one last one for you. Besides the usual black caviar winks and even probably pre Maccabi Diva, is there any horse or horses that stand out as – the best you'd seen over that period of time? I've always said to people that the best horse I ever saw live was Might and Power. Um, that year when he won the Caulfield Cup and the Melbourne Cup, um, they were two of the best performances I've ever seen. And I had, had cottoned on to him a little bit before that time um, and I just loved to look at the horse. just a magnificent-looking horse and just a terrific galloper. He was... He's the best horse I've seen live, as leaving aside black caviar, winks, etc. Um, I went to, and so he might empower the answer to your question. I went to, I went to Ascot on a whim, a last minute decision, just the year that black caviar won over there. And that was a terrific experience because there was pretty common knowledge that she wasn't 100% right. And for her to do what she did, um, on the day, even though she only just won, um, she probably didn't show the world and particularly the UK people just how good she was. But bottom line was she still won and she still won their biggest sprint race. So she was fantastic. 
Thanks, Kevin. That's uh, some great insights and, I guess, uh, a long career in the industry and I'm sure many more years to come. I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. I certainly hope there's many more years to come. Thanks very much, Joe. 